one hopes that this is one of a great many Jane Eyre days being celebrated wherever English is spoke. <laughs> it may be just as well, however, that you got to this one, just in case. It's a great pleasure to welcome Karen Chase, who's speaking to us this evening. She's been teaching uh, Victorian literature at the University of Virginia since 1979, which makes her uh, a great deal older in university terms than most of us. Thank you very much. Thank you, and I also want to thank you for inviting me to be part of this splendid exhibition, which I had nothing to do with, so I can take none of the credit. Um, and I also want to thank all of you for coming out at the end of the week the end of the day, and the end of all good weather. Um, so I'm talking tonight, who's, who's Jane Eyre? After they are well acquainted, the imperturbable Ginevra Fanshawe from Bronte's last novel, Villette, turns to the oblique heroine Lucy Snow, and bluntly inquires, Who are you, Miss Snow? Readers of Bronte's fiction will know that this is precisely the question best posed to every Bronte heroine, but only after we have come to know her well. Because, like Jane for Rochester, each might elude the grasp like an essence and vanish ere I inhale your fragrance. It's not that Bronte's women are insubstantial or ethereal. It's that they are complex and variable. They are radically and provokingly multiple and they conceal while they reveal. The exhibit which surrounds us engages with this deep ambiguity, and from it I draw the subject and the title for my talk. As we'll see, who is Jane Eyre depends very much on how we answer who's Jane Eyre. Mrs. Reed's Jane Eyre is deceitful, sullen, full of venomous spite, and the reader who would protest on our young heroine's behalf, is cautioned by the older Jane herself. All said I was wicked, and perhaps it might be so. She later confesses that I felt indeed only bad feelings surging in my breast. For the imperious Blanche Ingram, Jane is one of the anathematized species governess the race of young women who exist to be thwarted, degraded, and abused for presuming to enter the homes and perhaps hoping to engage the hearts of their social betters. As master of the home Jane has entered, Mr. Edward Fairfax Rochester half enjoys the insult Blanche Ingram casts at the small, plain governess he has employed, and not the less because 
he knows the arrow hits the mark with respect to his own heart. To Rosamond Oliver, the rich manufacturer's daughter who is in love with the exacting minister, St. John Rivers, Jane is very much, except in beauty, like Mr. Rivers. And Sinjin concurs, claiming kinship on the grounds of similarity rather than because of their cousinship. For in your nature is an alloy as detrimental to repose as that in mine, he will tell her, as he tries to reinforce their other shared traits, which include ambition, discipline, and self-restraint. And Rochester himself despite the astute analysis of Jane's soul, which he offers in the guise of a cross-dressed gypsy, even Rochester succumbs to his own need to paint Jane in terms of his want rather than her aspect, after their marriage has been thwarted by the public exposure of his prior marriage to Bertha Mason. Rochester confesses his past to Jane, and he includes in his report the recent past, which involves their own meeting and subsequent relationship. From his point of view, we see a very different Jane, not at all the one we had come to know through her own narration of the rage and resentment she felt at Gateshead, the anxiety and privation she experienced at Lowood, along with the later resolute hardiness and determination she developed. Indeed, from Rochester's world-weary perspective, Jane's look revealed the sweet musings of youth when its spirit follows on willing wings the flight of hope up and on to an ideal heaven. Even when he knows her better, even when he knows, for instance, that you had little hope and no actual pleasure, He continues to see Jane, because he needs to see her this way, as my better self, my good angel. Are all of these Janes merely false images? On the contrary, each one is at once an aspect of personality and a response to the provocations of her world. Jane draws out others by allowing her surface to reflect their needs. Her task as narrator is to produce each character in her or his most interesting, most peculiar lights. As character, however, Jane is no simple chameleon. As she changes from the perspective of each character who observes her, she also reacts and often resists the demands of each. After she discovers who and what the impediment to her marriage is, Jane explains to Rochester, all is changed about me, I must change too. If Jane shatters any attempt to contain her in a unity, attempts within the novel, attempts in the afterlife of the novel, Isn't this because Bronte devised a shattering demand that hasn't yet been met? She imagined a character who is a dense constellation of impulses, ideas, hopes, dreams, desires, dreads, 
all of them claiming a right to expression. And if she is different in different contexts, isn't that because the novel projects a character who cannot be reduced to the usual forms of coherence, but who opens to the insistent multiple possibilities? Bronte offers us this image of personality as changing and changeable, resistant, responsive, reactive. But even this complexity suggests too simple a view, because Bronte offers another image of personality, one that derives from the early 19th century pursuits of physiognomy and phrenology, and which attests to a model of the personality which is precisely unchanging, God-given, or biologically unalterable. In this model, the personality consists of essences rather than fragrances, fixed dispositions rather than improvisations. Originating on the continent in the work of Franz Joseph Gall at the end of the 18th century, phrenology came to Britain through the efforts of George Combe, and it was particularly influential in the decades leading up to Bronte's attempts at authorship. And of course we should recall that although today we refer to it as a pseudoscience, there was no such pejorative appellation undermining its credentials at the time. Phrenology maintained that the brain held the map to the personality, which could be charted by examining the size and position of the 40 bumps and protuberances that composed it. Yet even though the claim was that character was embedded in the hard lumps of the head, what drew Bronte was the flexibility in this picture. As the bumps showed themselves in complex patterns, so personality could be divided and multiplied. Emotions set in harmony or in discord, one with another, and some traits either consistent or inconsistent with others. Bronte is no systematic adherent to the phrenological model. Certainly we do not trust Blanche Ingram or Lady Ingram's estimates when they employ uh, phrenological terminology. Much more to the point is Bronte's interest in any explanatory model which can simultaneously give form and make flexible the structures of personality that compose a self. And then equally attractive to her was the way phrenology allows us to think about character as both private and visible. Bronte wants to acknowledge the storm of desire agitating within in all its indeterminacy. But she also sees us as embodied images, embodied beings who will sooner or later display our interior to the outside. In this respect, phrenology is not just an eccentric interest, but a powerful figure for Bronte's plots, which move in a rhythm of concealment and revelation, interiority and public display, self-suppression and eruption. We have a sense now of the many Janes that populate this ever-changing text. 
But we have yet to answer the question, who is and who's Jane Eyre? There's another wrinkle in the text. And again, like this exhibition, it reminds us that the narrative is a text, that it lives in print, on paper, and its life extends much longer than Bronte's life. In fact, as I think this wonderful exhibit testifies, though the public life of Jane Eyre began in 1847, it continues hale and hearty today. Like Rochester, who despite the loss of sight and limb, and whose self-described cicatrist visage forever testifies to a life of pain and sorrow, nonetheless remains, according to Jane, green and vigorous, so too the novel itself as a printed text endures editions and reprints, becomes transformed into stage plays, television adaptations, movies, even opera. The cultural life of a text, of course, transforms it and everything in it. Each rendition of Jane Eyre draws on the original as well as on other reincarnations of the text and the character. And each Jane reflects the preoccupations and values of its time in its selection of details, its accents and omissions, its tones and temperaments. Therefore, the Jane Eyre with which I begin tonight is both new, the Jane of 1847, and old, the Jane of 2005. She is both child and woman, Victorian and modern. She is a fragrance and an essence, a voice and a presence, someone we can capture and something which resists entrenchment and engulfment. Can there be a misreading of Jane Eyre if other characters and readers alike interpret her so differently? Are all Janes equally valid, equally Jane? Is every plain Jane our Jane? And has Jane Eyre lost her individual identity in the many partial portraits which contend with the original? When you misconstrue character in literature, you create a kind of monstrosity, a half-breed, which is neither literary nor actual, but which exerts influence, possesses effects, nonetheless. No doubt Jane Eyre, novel and character, can resist our misinterpretations. The original is more powerful than our reproductions of her. Students in my classes have repeatedly expressed surprise when they read or reread the novel after many years. They're surprised that the original Jane always, always is other than they had expected or remembered. The best film or play, the best essay, even the best lecture, the best characterization sends us back to the original Jane, the textual Jane, the Jane Eyre which Charlotte Bronte imagined and narrated. She is no more authentic than the other Janes. She's simply ever-provoking, ever-challenging, always alluring. The Jane Eyre I want to summon tonight isn't represented on stage or film, and she's very elusive 
in the novel. In fact, in some ways, she's not in the novel. Who is this Jane Eyre? And to whom does she belong? To whom is she connected? What is her relation to us, her readers, and her audience? At the famous start to chapter 10, Jane describes her irregular autobiographical method. I am only bound to invoke memory where I know her responses will possess some degree of interest. Therefore, I now pass a space of eight years almost in silence. Fair enough. Only later on, we have a very curious reference to this time, when Rochester examines the haunting watercolors Jane composed. Were you happy when you painted these pictures? Rochester asks her. And Jane replies, I was absorbed, sir, yes, and I was happy. To paint them, in short, was to enjoy one of the keenest pleasures I have ever known. That is not saying much. Your pleasures, by your own account, have been few. But I dare say you did exist in a kind of artist's dreamland while you blent and arranged these strange tints. Did you sit at them long each day? I had nothing else to do because it was the vacation, and I sat at them from morning till noon and from noon till night. The length of the midsummer days favored my inclination to apply. Are we to assume that Jane didn't tell us about these drawings because she thought we wouldn't be interested? Because she assumed we wouldn't care about experience that gave her the keenest pleasure? There is no coyness here, but there is evidence of careful narrative maneuvering. Jane describes in detail her humiliations, her fears, her rebellions, but she reserves mention of one of the keenest pleasures until it is revived under the influence of another moment of keenest pleasure, that of becoming known to Rochester. Did the pictures even exist before Rochester's interest in them? In a strong sense, no. His interest calls them into being, just as his attraction to her illuminates the space where this past Jane can be newly conceived and narratively realized for the first time. What has happened here? Jane withholds information until it can be revealed in a context which makes it tell, makes it speak, makes it resonate. This is retrospective in name only, but it lets us see that the strong march to the future in this narrative is always at the same time a march into the past. The past is not where Jane begins. In a centrally determining sense, the past is where she ends. She arrives at her beginnings. She escapes into origins. This temporal dislocation, achieved by deferring a past moment until it can be seen properly in the present, this is a technique Jane employs again, especially in moments of extremity. 
Recall, for instance, her three disturbing dreams and an even more disturbing visit from Bertha in the dead of night, all as uncanny as the paintings, and each warning her of an impediment to her upcoming marriage. Anxiously, she waits for Rochester's return so that she can confide in him and ask for explanation and hope for reassurance. However, apart from informing us that she has something of importance to say, she reserves all specific details. Stay till he comes, reader, and when I disclose my secret to him, you shall share the confidence. We must share her anxiety, her restlessness, and her hope that Rochester's presence will rescue us. The inadequacy of his explanation... You remember he describes all as the unreal visions of an overstimulated brain. And Jane's admission that satisfied I was not, but to please him I endeavored to appear so. These create a space in the novel in which Jane's uneasiness and our forebodings can be lodged. We wait and we worry with a Jane who is not figured in the happy bride-to-be. The most elaborate deferral or withholding of information involves the famous return to Thornfield. When Jane carries us on the stream of her own anxious energy, eager to discover what has happened to Rochester, and yet realizing that to prolong doubt was to prolong hope. After Jane sees the ruined mansion and fears the worst, She delays confiding in the reader. As Thornfield comes into her view, not ours, we perceive Jane through the eyes of crows flying overhead who interpret her protracted, hardy gaze first as an affectation of diffidence and then as stupid regardlessness. What is it that she sees? We have yet another pause. Here, an illustration, reader. But the admonition to hear, H-E-A-R, is also a definition of space. Here not only refers to the place in which Jane stands, or the place in which Thornfield did stand, but also here in the text, where we have the simple traumatic fact broken into four distinct paragraphs, two longer ones punctuated by two dramatic paragraphs, each consisting of one sentence, the final one after the parable of a suitor finding his lover dead on the ground, reading, I looked with timorous joy towards a stately mansion, excuse me, towards a stately house. I saw a blackened ruin. In each of these instances, Jane displaces a moment from the past or her present onto another moment, which occurs afterwards. We do not see her at the moment of conscious recognition, not when she's beside herself in what Rochester calls an artist's dreamland, painting her pictures, nor in the terror of her dreams and Bertha's nocturnal visit, 
and again not at the moment of utter desolation when she's witness to the apparent loss of what she most loves. If Thornfield no longer exists, how can she be sure its master survives? These moments are intensely private. They belong to a region of selfhood not ready to be shared, a subterranean self which cannot yet articulate what it is that constitutes experience. It can only just absorb the stimuli. Experience is conveyed afterwards, subsequently, eventually, seconds, days, years. The amount of time is irrelevant. We learn two things from these incidents. The first is that the Jane we come to know is engaged in an intricate project of self-discovery, self-construction, self-revision, self-recognition. Jane inspects the contents of her mind like an artist rummaging around through her studio, but also like an uncreated soul looking for a body to inhabit. Upon seeing her paintings, Rochester asks Jane, Where did you get your copies? Out of my head, she replies. That head I see now on your shoulders? Yes, sir. Has it other furniture of the same kind within? I should think it may have. I should hope better. Her head is an it. She knows that it's hers, but she too wonders what it contains. Again, this is not shyness or coy. This is not irony. It is the condition of Bronte's audacity to imagine a character who never quite coincides with herself. If Jane Eyre has had such a prolific after-history, if we can never seem to get enough of Jane, if we retell her story constantly, even if we call her by other names, such as our own, this is because Bronte conceives her as a figure of radical possibility. She will never be exhausted by action or incident. And this is not only because her future is open. As we've seen, her past is open too. At every stage in her progress, we encounter strange shadows of a past we never knew she had, even a past she never knew she had. The first thing we learn, then, is how important delay, postponement, and deferral are. Not only constitutive constitutive of the structure of narrative, but also constitutive of the structure of this remarkable character, her self-understanding, and the reader's slow access to comprehension. The second thing we learn is that there is an entire world of sensation to which we are not privy, which belongs to Jane Eyre. This world is not secret. Jane merely thinks of it as irrelevant, not indeed to her, but to us, her readers, to whom she prefers to show the final art of personality rather than its false starts, erasures, rewritings. 
By noticing this, we gain access not only into the Jane we always thought we knew, but also into some of the otherwise disturbing habits she displays, especially the habit of withholding information from other characters for her own purposes or for their own good. Out of self-protection, she conceals her identity from the Rivers family, although she provides all the information they need to deduce her name when her narrative depends on this awareness. Jane claims ignorance when St. John eagerly tears from the bottom of her sketch of Rochester the artist's signature, which she later declares was written doubtless in some moment of abstraction. Jane Elliot, for that is the name she gives herself at Marsh End, is consistent with Jane Eyre, but the two are not identical. And this realization that the two Janes overlap but do not converge, this is as important for the reader as is the realization that Jane Elliot is Jane Eyre for St. John and the River Sisters. As Jane Elliot, St. John's keen eye comprehends Jane's capacities for discipline, self-restraint, endurance, tractability, sublimation. He translates her restlessness and agitation into his own ambitions for travel and action on a wider scope. When he learns that she is Jane Eyre, he also learns about her past with Rochester, And fittingly, he begins to see he's forced to acknowledge her passion, her joy in domestic life, and earthly sensuous pleasures. The reader, on the other hand, learns from Jane Elliot that our passionate Jane Eyre can be autonomous without submission, restraint, or rebellion. She can be quite successful as Jane Elliot. When she claims her inheritance, she reemerges as a kind of Jane Elliot heir. And we drop the Elliot just as easily as we later drop her full name, Jane Eyre Rochester. But then that final Jane retains the shadows of all these transformations. Readers and critics are often disturbed by another omission, Jane's refusal to tell Rochester that she did hear his cri de coeur, Jane, 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 and that her own response was carried back to him. She explains, the coincidence struck me as too awful and inexplicable to be communicated or discussed adding, if I told anything, my tale would be such as must necessarily make a profound impression on the mind of my hearer, and that mind, yet from its sufferings too prone to gloom, needed not the deeper shade of the supernatural. I kept these things then and pondered them in my heart. Does she tell Rochester later, after they're married? We know that they, quote, talk, I believe, all day long. To talk to each other is but a more animated and an audible thinking. All my confidence is bestowed on him 
all his confidence is devoted to me, would it be a violation of that trust achieved after the refusal to disclose if Jane continued to keep private this most glaring assertion of their natural affinity? Talking is audible thinking, but is all thought accessible if it is not spoken? This leads us to the greatest instance of the gap between the tangible narrative and the shadow narrative which Jane inhabits equally. But first, to employ her own method of deferral, but first I want to explore one slightly different kind of withholding because it further complicates the portrait of Jane Eyre, making it ever more dense and richer, ever deeper and more resonant. I'm referring to the existence of Bertha Mason, the madwoman in the attic, and to Jane's difficulty of narrating from a position of knowledge about her younger self, who has yet to discover the awful truth. From a technical point of view, Jane handles the problem with finesse. Her puzzlement, fear, incomprehension pique the reader's curiosity, rouse the reader's senses. But here, too, the gap between experience and telling hints at a shadow Jane, whose emotions exceed those she chooses to communicate and whose existence exceeds the dimensions of the self-portrait that she is composing. Jane's attraction to the third story of Thornfield Hall alternates with her anxiety about the laughter and the incomprehensible murmurings emanating from upstairs. She obligingly settles on poor Grace Poole as the perpetrator of these unearthly noises since her trusted Mr. Rochester gratefully encourages this misapprehension. But Jane's usual acuity is suspended when she realizes that no one else hears what she hears or puzzles where she is confused. The strangest thing of all was that not a soul in the house except me noticed her habits or seemed to marvel at them. No one discussed her position or employment. No one pitied her solitude or isolation. Instead of suspecting her own interpretation, Jane doubts the penetration of all others or their willingness to acknowledge what they must privately understand. When her appearance stops all conversation and she hears the charwoman whisper, Doesn't she know? Jane merely concludes in supremely ironic understatement that there was a mystery at Thornfield. (laughs) And from participation in that mystery, I was purposely excluded. Of course, Jane can't discover the secret of Rochester's marriage until it literally brings down her own. But the existence of Bertha and Rochester's marriage to her are only closely related facts. They are neither synchronous nor synonymous. Like the other characters, Jane could learn of the existence of the madwoman without knowing in what close relation that person stood 
to Rochester. Not every madwoman is a wife. Of course, if she'd written a partial confession into the text, Bronte would have had to find a way to excuse Rochester from telling a direct lie instead of lying by omission. But what interests me here is not the technical problem. We're accustomed to talk about Jane's curiosity. After all, her inquisitive nature impels plot and works toward exposure. But here is another Jane, a Jane who resists knowledge even when the plot itself invites disclosure. This Jane looks at glaring evidence and time and again finds comfort in turning aside, settling for half or inadequate explanations, retreating in the face of inquiry. We have a clue to Jane's curious suspension of inquisitiveness from an earlier incident in the novel, just before she faints in the red room at the Reeds. The ten-year-old Jane fears that her own violent grief might waken a preternatural voice to comfort me or elicit from the gloom some haloed face bending over me with strange pity. Is it the ghost or her own capacity to summon a presence from beyond which most terrifies her? Many have commented on the relation between Jane and Bertha. But I'm asking us now to distinguish between the creation and the impulse to create. The imagination which can conjure such beings is, we might say, at least as, and perhaps more terrifying than the creature it summons. Jane, the character, may well fear the antics of a madwoman bent on interfering with her namesake-to-be, that is, Mrs. Rochester. But the shadow Jane that we are tracing here also gives sign of her anxiety, the anxiety of imagining the sensibility of a madwoman and what she might feel under constraint. We are very far indeed from the sweet musings of youth which Rochester thinks comprise the contents of Jane Eyre's mind. All of the Jane Eyres one knows and imagines follow the trajectory which ends in a happy marriage and fulfilled expectations. This shadow Jane is no different, but the happy life is not exactly like the one described in the final self-portrait. Here, now at the close, we experience once again the shadow, a shaded echo of the text, making the words on the page unsteady, causing us to wonder if the motion is on the page or in our eyes. From the 1960s forward, interpretations of the novel often express ambivalence about the end. Some note that Rochester's maiming is necessary not only for his salvation or even his happiness, but also for Jane's achieving full equality in their relationship. Others worry that Jane gets more than her fair share of equality. 
They're uneasy with what seems to be her advantage, even her superiority. Although he has regained partial sight, Jane remains Rochester's guide, his amanuensis, his primary, if not solitary, interlocutor. Still others worry that Jane herself is limited by the need to care for Rochester. What has happened to the desire for a stirring life of incident and action? The novel traces Jane's desire to find a home and a family. And in the final picture of each, we see that desire rewarded perfectly. But the novel also traces Jane's ambition for a wide life, for the sense of belonging not only to a family, but also to the world beyond. Notoriously, the novel ends not with marital happiness, but with the voice and words of St. John as he inspects his missionary accomplishments in India and anticipates in his imminent death a union with God. Is it satisfying, and more importantly, is it true, to say that Jane's desires for transcendence are answered only indirectly through her appreciation of, admiration for, and identification with St. John Rivers? St. John has worked tirelessly to achieve the reconciliation of what he called propensities and principles. And he explains to Jane the theory which underlines his behavior. It is hard work to control the workings of inclination, he says, and turn the bent of nature. But that it may be done, I know from experience. God has given us, in a measure, the power to make our own fate. And when our energies seem to demand a sustenance they cannot get, when our will strains after a path we may not follow, we need neither starve from inanition nor stand still in despair. We have but to seek another nourishment for the mind as strong as the forbidden fruit it longed to taste, and perhaps purer, and to hew out for the adventurous foot a road as direct and broad as the one fortune has blocked up against us, if rougher than it. Jane is no stranger either to the problem or the solution. St. John merely names what it is she has experienced repeatedly. After eight years of what Rochester identifies as the Lowood restraint, Jane, you remember, cries out for liberty. I desired liberty, for liberty I gasped, for liberty I uttered a prayer. It seemed scattered on the wind, then faintly blowing. I abandoned it and framed a humbler supplication for change, stimulus. That petition, too, seemed swept off into vague space. Then I cried, half-desperate, grant me at least a new servitude. St. John describes the process, formulates the principle, abstracts it from the lived experience which Jane has already endured. The new servitude she sought at Thornfield threatens to be as inadequate as Lowood 
in providing Jane with the stimulation she craves. The routine and social isolation only incite new, anxious stirring within. From the leads of Thornfield, Jane expresses her longing, quote, for a power of vision which might overpass that limit of the horizon she's looking out, which might reach the busy world, towns, regions full of life I had heard of but never seen. After her first meeting with Rochester, she's reluctant to regain the house, quote, to slip again over my faculties the viewless fetters of an uniform and too still existence, of an existence whose very privileges of security and ease I was becoming incapable of appreciating. She is not at this point looking for romance, although that is one shape for her inborn restlessness once she comes to know Rochester. But our shadow, Jane, follows a slightly different course. We know it because there's another one of those brief gaps in the text, a moment in which Jane indicates a wider field for her mind than her narrative acknowledges. While wandering through the corridors on the third story, Jane allows the expansion of her mind's eye. She would allow my mind's eye to dwell on whatever bright visions rose before it, and certainly they were many and glowing, to let my heart be heaved by the exultant movement, which, while it swelled it in trouble, expanded it with life and best of all, to open my inward ear to a tale that was never ended, a tale my imagination created and narrated continuously, quickened with all of incident, life, fire, and feeling that I desired and had not in my actual existence. What stories? What new characters, incidents? What new feelings and scenes is she experiencing here? All of a sudden, a gulf opens, and Jane Eyre, the novel and the character, threatens to expand into an Arabian Nights, another narrative or multiple narratives. Suddenly, we get a glimpse of the author-narrator Jane and her author-narrator Charlotte Bronte. Bronte, I'm sure you all know, used to write about her early juvenilia in terms very much like this as she toiled monotonously teaching students for whom she had little or no fondness while living away from home at Roe Head. She longed for the hour when she could fill her mind with the events of the fiery Angrian kingdom, which she called her infernal world. Whose voice are we hearing at this moment? There is a Jane whose mind's eye is not only very restless, It is very active. In fact, it's busy imagining even as it goes through the motions of everyday life. Does this Jane have a happy ending? What is reserve, what is in reserve for her? It's right, I think, to say that the ending of this shadow Jane is tied up in the ending she narrates for St. John Rivers though the two are not synonymous. 
Like Sinjin, this Jain demands and achieves some form of transcendence. For Sinjin, it is wholly spiritual. For Jain Eyre, it is a meeting of nature and imagination. Although we know that she and Rochester spend all day together doing nothing but talking, we also know that Jane visits Adele, she travels to London to consult with eye surgeons, and the visit is not marked with a stamp of exception. Elsewhere in the novel, there's evidence of familiarity with the greater world. Fifteen years after Helen Burns has died, a gravestone mysteriously appears on the previously unmarked spot where she lay buried. Jane has visited Lowood and paid tribute to her friend. She apparently has also traveled to France and Germany, since when she's writing of her teaching experience in Marsh End, she can compare peasants from those countries with those from England. And, of course, she remains in close contact with Mary and Diana Rivers, visiting them and hosting them in alternate years. Jane Eyre endures a traumatic youth and a turbulent passage into adulthood. Trusting to her capacity for work and her inclination to love, she makes her way independently to the great spreading world and also to the enfolding hearts of those she loves. Early on, Rochester discovers her talent for listening. It is not your forte to tell of yourself, but to listen while others talk of themselves. Indeed, this Jane feels at home only when I had passed the outworks of conventional reserve and crossed the threshold of confidence and won a place by the heart's very hearthstone. This Jane thrives on intimacy, domesticity, and calm. United with the chastened Rochester, she, find, she finds bliss in repose. Jane Eyre is also a self-styled, quote, wanderer on the face of the earth, whose childhood confinement encouraged the flight of imagination, first through Buick's book of British birds and the Arabian Nights, and through her refusal to bow to conventions of language which label her bad, her aunt a benefactress, and childhood itself a period of sweet and simple content. Later at Lowood, she develops her capacity to question, where is God and what is God? She redefines the relations of nature and spirit, redefines even what it is for her to be a good Christian. Is it any wonder that in 1848, in the Quarterly Review, Elizabeth Rigby vehemently denounced the book, charging that, quote, the tone of mind and thought, which has overthrown authority and violated every code, human and divine, abroad, and fostered chartism and rebellion at home, is the same which has also written Jane Eyre. This Jane leads an active, busy life at the close. Not only does she travel and engage widely in human relations, but, and this is the greatest and most confounding gap of all, she writes. She writes the story of her life 
as she wants to tell it. But she writes into that story, not the story of her writing, but only the shadow of her authorship. Critics have wondered when and where she writes. They suppose the activity is secret, separate from her marriage. But this is not another mystery so much as the hint of another story, the glimpse of a companion Jane who is not in Jane Eyre and who is not of Jane Eyre. The ethical and even political demand of the novel lies in the sheer extravagance that gathers under the name Jane. That she can be so much peaceful and infernal, imaginative and practical, married and alone, so honest and so cunning, so ardent and so quiet, and that she can be all this not as a chaos of inconsistencies, but as a character, a fictional invention that we accept as a representation of how life might be lived, this is the abiding and invigorating challenge. Jane Eyre suggests that a full human existence must accommodate all these possibilities. It must become a form of life that incorporates and then expresses our human plenitude. I ask, who is Jane Eyre? And then I ask, who is not? Thank you.